our lesson this morning is from John 21, verses 15 through 19. John writes, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful that you have provided your word to us in what is often a dark, dreary, distracting, and confusing world. And Father, your word serves as a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And Father, this morning I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will, you will cause it to burn brightly, that it will shine into our hearts, that you will teach us, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. If I had to guess, I would say that probably one thing that's common to, to many of us who claim the name of Christ is that at some point in our lives, we have, we have found ourselves struggling with this sense that we've disappointed God. Maybe it's something that we did before we even came to Christ, or maybe it's something we did when we were new Christians. Maybe it's something that you said to someone last week. Maybe it's an ongoing struggle that you have in a relationship. Uh, maybe it's a habit that you have that you can't break. But I suspect that, that for most of us, there's something that we can look to and say, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think God's disappointed with me about this. And that's not really surprising because we know that, that as human beings, we're sinful. We know that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the closer we walk with Christ, the more we are acutely aware of how our sin nature separates us so far from his, from his pure holiness. But one of the challenges that we have as, as believers, as we try to walk with Christ, is that while Satan cannot deprive us of our salvation... He certainly can, and he certainly tries to deprive us of the joy that we should have in that salvation. And if we allow him to take root up here in, in, in rent-free space in our minds, what ends up happening over time is, is he can actually make us dull and less useful tools in the hand of Christ our Master. And so that's why I really like this particular passage in John so very much, because in this, Jesus is speaking to Peter, who is in the shadow of his three denials of Christ. And he's still trying to deal with the, the emotional content of, of Christ's 
arrest and crucifixion, Peter's own denial of Christ, and then, and then Christ's resurrection. And Peter's asking the question, how do I stand with the risen Lord? And again, I think if we're honest, and, and if we're looking at our own spiritual walk, it's a question that we can ask of ourselves. Where do we stand? And Satan very often wants to tell you, you're not worthy. And that's a very powerful lie from Satan because there's an element of truth in there, isn't it? We truly aren't worthy. But that's not the point because Christ is worthy. And it's from that perspective that, that Christ begins to walk Peter through the denials and begins to restore him and, and, and give him back the joy of his fellowship. So, let's set the stage so we can really unpack this, this passage and, and, and see the rich meaning behind what's going on in Peter's head and in Christ's heart. Now, remember that Jesus told Peter that he would deny him during the, the whole upper room discussion, right? After the Lord's Supper, after the foot washing, Jesus is telling them some of the things that they're going to need to know for what happens next. And part of what he tells them is, the time's going to come when the authorities are going to take me, they're going to strike me down, and all of you will scatter on account of me. All of you will fall away on account of me. And, and so Peter, God love Peter, steps up and boldly says, Lord, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, we don't actually see in the Gospels how the other disciples react to this. John doesn't say, you know, Peter said, and, you know, and I was offended. Uh, James, Peter's brother, doesn't say, well, wait a second. We don't, we don't really know, but we can kind of imagine, can't we? Here's Peter, and he stands up and he says, Lord, though all of these folks fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I love you that much. We also read in Luke he goes a step further and he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. John records that Peter says, I will even lay down my life for you. Well, Jesus hears that and he gently says to Peter, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? Peter, I tell you, before the cock crows three times, you will have denied me before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Well, Peter, again, being Peter, doesn't believe that. Mark records that he says emphatically, Lord, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Not happening. Well, we know the rest of the story, of course, don't we? Peter stakes himself out, sets a very high bar for himself, and as circumstances unfold, Peter realizes <clears throat> that in his own strength, he's not up to the test. <clears throat> in John 18, verses 1 through 12, we, we read about Jesus' arrest and how the crowd comes to, uh, to the garden and they step forward to take Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that Peter realizes there's a threat to his Lord. And so what does he do? He pulls out a sword. And he, he comes at, at the servant of the high priest, Malchus, and he takes a swing at him, and he cuts off his ear. Now, have you ever wondered why John puts that detail in that scripture, when he cuts off the right ear? I don't think that, that there are loose details in scripture. I think they're all there on purpose. 
And if you think about it, probably very few combat, folks who have been wounded by the Roman army in combat would have lost an ear. Because it's not a place where you swing to hit. You know what? I'm going to hit your ear. You don't aim for someone's ear. You aim for their head because that's, that's important. That's a vital target. But don't get me wrong. Malchus liked his ear. He was attached to it. And I suspect that when he saw it on the ground, he was very disappointed. But I suggest to you, Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. He took a swing at the head or somewhere else, somewhere vital, and he misses. He just misses because Peter's not a soldier. He's a fisherman. He could no more wield this sword effectively than I could wield one of his casting nets. And, and to reinforce this point, they don't arrest Peter. Now, Jesus says, look, take me, leave, leave everybody else alone. But don't you think if they thought that Peter was a real threat, they would have taken him too? But they leave him there, and he's sitting there holding the sword, maybe feeling silly. Certainly looking silly. But in any case... What ends up happening next isn't silly. It's actually quite tragic. So the crowd takes Jesus, and they take him to the, the, the high priest's residence, and they go into the courtyard. Now, John records that, that because he knew the high priest and his family, he's able to get in there. And not only does he get in there to follow Jesus, but he gets Peter in too. He says, hey, look, can I get in? How about my buddy? Can I get in? Okay, so John and Peter... They go into the courtyard because they want to see what's going on with Jesus. And that's important for what unfolds. Because in verse 17, we see that a servant girl approaches Peter. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, we've got a certain hierarchy. You've got the emperor, you've got his governors, you've got the military occupation. In Palestine, you have the Jewish authorities. I would suggest to you that in the hierarchy of, of authority figures, a servant girl is very unthreatening. So if there's somebody to whom Peter could have, have freely confessed, yeah, I, I follow Jesus, it's a servant girl. She's not a threat. And on top of that, this servant girl probably knew that Peter was with Jesus. Because otherwise, why is he there? If he's not part of the high priest's household, and the only other folks who are milling around there are people who are with Jesus or there to, do, to, to cause Jesus some harm, who, which camp are you in? And so she says, aren't you with Jesus? It's a slow-pitch softball. And Peter swings and strikes. He denies Jesus to the servant girl. Shortly thereafter, he's gathered around the fire to stay warm. And there are other folks. This is a little bit more of an intimidating setting. There are lots of people. And so they say, what, aren't you with Jesus? No, no I, don't even know, I don't even know who he is. Well, that, of course, begs kind of an interesting question. If you don't know who he is, why are you here? It, it's a denial, but it's not a very credible denial. And that's the point that, I'm, that, that I think John has, has made implicitly. People should have known why he was there. But then the ultimate denial comes in verse 26 when one of Malchus's relatives, remember Malchus, the guy whose ear got cut off? One of Malchus's relatives said, wait a second, didn't I see you in the garden? Surely you're one of his followers. And, and what ends up happening, it, we, we read in, in Matthew, is that when he's asked the third time, aren't you with Jesus? He says, I tell you, I don't even know the guy. And as a matter of fact, 
Matthew records that he's about to call a curse down on himself, as if he was going to say, I swear to God, I don't know the guy. But before the curse can leave his lips, he hears the cock crow, and he suddenly remembers. He remembers the three denials. He remembers Jesus' prophecy. And I suspect he even remembers how boldly he proclaimed, I will never deny you. Though everyone falls away, I will never leave you, I will never deny you. But if you look at the text, there's actually something that is even more stinging about what, what transpires here. If you keep reading John 18, what you see is immediately after that third denial, there's Jesus. Now, when we read this in our Bible, we have a paragraph break. But, we don't, but, but that's not the way John wrote it. Jesus... Peter denies Jesus the third time. And what happens next? They lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. He's coming out through the courtyard. And I think that sequence is important because I wonder when Peter says, I tell you, I don't even know the guy. I wonder if that denial is hanging on his lips even as Jesus is walking out. I wonder if Jesus can hear it. I wonder if at some point their eyes lock. I wonder if having said something about someone very dear to him, he turns around and realizes there's somebody, there he is. And I think we probably have all had that chilling moment where we've said something we shouldn't have said, and then we turn around and there's the person about whom our comment pertains. But magnify that by a thousand times, and that's where Peter is at that moment. In Matthew 26, verse 75, we read that as soon as this unfolds, Peter realizes what he's done, and he runs out and he weeps bitterly. Bitterly. Now, because of our familiarity with this story, and because almost every Easter we, we read parts of this, there's a danger that it can lose its sting for us, and that we don't really fully appreciate where Peter's heart was at that point in time. Because with this familiarity, it, it, it kind of becomes smooth and well-worn. And that's why I wanted to spend some time unpacking this. But, but there's another reason I want to spend some time unpacking this, and that's because, really, I question whether we're any different. How many of us, when we first claim Christ, are ready to do some great things for the kingdom? How many of us maybe go to a retreat or a conference, and we come back, and we're ready to do some great things for the kingdom? Or maybe we have one of those fabulous Christmas services, and we listen to one of Robert's messages and some great music from Josh, and, and, and we're ready to do great things for the kingdom. Or here comes Easter, or there's communion. There's some moment where we really feel like we're, we're in sync with Jesus. And then what happens? Maybe, maybe it's a month later. Maybe it's a week later. Maybe it's trying to get out of the parking lot on the way to lunch. Whenever it is, there's something that we say or that we do or there's a thought or there's a way we treat someone and we think, did I do that again? Did I do that again? Ha have I once again decided to leave the path that Jesus has put me on and instead pursue my own path? Folks, don't be, but don't be deceived. Anytime we choose what we want to do over what Christ calls us to do, we have denied him. We've denied his call upon us. 
and we've actually denied the sufficiency of our salvation. It's great that we're saved, but we want something else. Maybe it's that shiny thing we see in the catalog. I said catalog. I guess now it's on the website, isn't it? I'm, I'm dating myself. Um, or, or we want a little bit more. We're denying the sufficiency of what Christ promises us, and we want something else. Well, whenever we have this, these crises of conscience, so very often Satan whispers in our ear and says, you screwed up again. You screwed up again. And we like to give him an audience. We like to let him, him talk and chatter and buzz and distract. Like, again, he can't deprive us of our salvation, but he certainly can dampen the joy the, the more we listen. Now, again, the most powerful lies contain an element of truth. And the truth is we aren't worthy. We aren't. And so Satan grabs onto that truth, but he, he unfolds it and says, you're worthless. You aren't worthy, and therefore you're worthless. And that's where the lie is. Because as, as believers, when we're constantly struggling with this question of who we are in the eyes of Christ, we've got to come back to defining the relationship. What, who are we, in fact, with regard to our relationship with Christ? And so that's why this passage, to me, is so very powerful, because Jesus sets out to define his relationship with Peter. In John 21, 15, he starts by saying, do you love me more than these? And it's a great question because in the Greek, there's a, there's a subtlety here. One of the things that, you, that jumps out is these. What, well, what are these? I would suggest that in context, when, Peter, when Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's asking, do you love me more than your brothers love me? And it's kind of a throwback to the upper room where Peter says, though they all fall away, I'll never fall away. Jesus is subtly reminding him, remember, remember that, that boast? He doesn't come out and say it, but, but it's there. Do you love me more than these people love me? But there's something else that's part of this question that we lose in the English. The, the word that Jesus uses here, we translate love. It's agapeo. It's, it's selfless, unconditional love. It's the love that, that Christ has for the church, and that ideally a husband should have for a wife and a wife for the husband. It's a very high, pure form of love. And so Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me unconditionally more than they do? And Peter, indicating that he can be taught, says, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Now again, in the English it's translated love, but the Greek word is different. Whereas Jesus uses the word agapeo, the word that Peter uses is phileo. It can mean love, but, it's a, it, but it means I've got great affection. Now Peter starts his answer by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. So the question is, he's saying yes to what? He's, he's not agreeing with Jesus because he doesn't use the same verb. He uses a different verb. So yes, what's he agreeing with? I think what he's agreeing with is, Jesus, I see your point. Yes, Lord, I see your point. But you know that I have great affection for you. Now, notice Jesus' response. He doesn't come back to Peter and say, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Why don't you agapeo me? I asked you if you agapeoed me, and you say you phileo, you've got great affection. Why do we have this disconnect? 
Jesus doesn't go there. Instead, he says, you know what, Peter, i got a job for you. Feed my lambs. And so the second question comes, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the same uh, verb, agapeo, do you, do you love me unconditionally? Now, this time he's not comparing him to, to the other disciples. He's just saying, forget them. It's just us. Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter again says, you know, yeah, I see what you're saying. I've got great affection for you. And once again, Jesus doesn't say, what's wrong with the agapeo? Don't you agapeo me? That's not what Jesus does. He says, tend my sheep. I hear what you're telling me, Peter. I got something for you to do. So here's the third question. He says, Peter, do you have great affection for me? In the Greek, Jesus changes verbs. He goes from agapeo to phileo. And there's some commentators who, who think that the, that the words are, are largely inter- interchangeable. I think if they were truly interchangeable in this context, Jesus would have kept using the same verb, but he doesn't. He switches. He, he says, Peter, do you have great affection for me? And Peter says, he, he's grieved, and we'll talk in a minute about why I think Peter's grieved. But he says, Lord, you, you know all things. You know that I have great affection for you. And so Jesus replies to him, feed my sheep. Now, I think that this, this walkthrough signals some marvelous grace on the part of Jesus. Notice every time Peter answers, Jesus replies that he, with something to, for Peter to do. He doesn't take Peter to task and say, that's not good enough. He doesn't take Peter to task and say, I, asked you, I didn't ask you if you had affection for me. I asked, I asked if you agapeoed me. I asked if you loved me unconditionally. That's not where Jesus goes. Every time he affirms Peter's answer as if to say, you know what? That's good enough for now. I can work with that. And to reinforce that point in verse 19, we, we see that Jesus speaks to Peter and he says the same words he said to Peter at the start of the ministry. Follow me. At the start of the ministry, he says, Peter, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so here, after all the denials, he says, follow me. Jesus also signals that Peter's matured rather significantly. He says, you know what, Peter? When you were, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. One thing I've learned from uh, working with Morgan and, and the youth is that youth have a way of dressing, and it's different from, you know, if you're a middle-aged lawyer. Uh, there's a certain swagger. And, it, and, and I think that's one of the points. It's not, it's not a bad thing, folks. It's not a bad thing. Um, but he says, you know, when you were young, you, 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 you dressed yourself and you did what you wanted to do. But Peter, the time's coming that you're going to be on a different path. You're going to do, you're going to follow a path that God has laid out. And it's a path that's even going to lead to your martyrdom. You're not always going to want to follow that path. But you're going to follow the path and you're going to serve the kingdom. And so... Peter's takeaway here is, follow me. Despite the fact that I have, that I have stumbled and fallen, Jesus says, follow me. Despite the fact that I, ha- that, that I have no real understanding of the nature of the kingdom, I think it's one of sword rather than, than of the word, follow me. Despite the fact that I, had, I didn't even have the courage 
to affirm you to a servant girl, follow me. Despite the fact that I, that I literally denied you and was about to call a curse down upon myself, just as you're walking through, follow me. The grace that Jesus shows Peter transcends all of Peter's shortcomings. And brothers and sisters, the amazing thing about the grace shown to Peter is it's the same grace shown to us. Notice that, that in this dialogue, Jesus meets Peter where he is. Again, he doesn't say, why don't you agape me? The I have great affection for you, Jesus, is enough. And really, that's the entire ministry That's the entire mission of Jesus on the cross, right here. Paul tells us in in Romans 5, verses 8 and 10, that while we were yet sinners, more than that, while we were yet God's enemies, Jesus went to the cross for us. We didn't know or care anything about his grace, but he still died to pay our sin debt. Jesus hung on the cross knowing that that Peter denied him. And likewise, he hung on the cross knowing that each of you who who have been called according to his purpose would someday deny him as well. That's the magnitude of, of, of Christ's grace. And he doesn't call us to understand everything about the order of salvation. What he does is he meets us where, he, where we are. Jesus tells the story in Luke 9, verse 24. Um, I'm sorry. Luke tells us a story in in. Uh, 924, about the father of the sick child who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my son is sick. If you can, please heal him. And Jesus says, if I can? If I can? Don't you know that all things are possible for those who believe? And the father cries out, Lord, 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 I believe, I believe. But help me in my unbelief. How many times do we have to cling to what Jesus promises us? How many times do we have to cling to things that we read in Scripture, not, not even beginning to comprehend the full picture? That's faith, and that's enough. And, and whether you're dealing with, whether you hear that your son has, auti- has autism and is looking at a life of institutionalization, and you think, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Or you yourself get a diagnosis of, of a, a dread condition and you wonder, where is God's hand in this? Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Or your house is in financial disarray or your marriage is, uh, is in turmoil. Or you have broken relationships at the office. Lord, I believe that you are sufficient. Help me in my unbelief. That is the powerful message of the gospel is that Christ meets us where we are. And that is sufficient. But don't be deceived, folks. One of the reasons that Satan can still whisper in our ears is that this kind of grace is hard to receive. I go back to Peter. I don't believe that Peter was grieved because he thought that Jesus doubted where Peter's heart was. Because Peter actually says, Lord, I know you know all things. So he affirms Christ's omniscience. I think Peter was grieved because he was having to walk through with Jesus, how, how little he deserved Christ's grace. And in my own experience, I look back at the, at the dark times of my life, and, and, and I don't want to relive them. And as a parent, when I'm, when I'm talking to, to my kids who have stumbled and fallen and, and 
done something that's just outright sin, and I walk them through it, it's a painful process, and they don't want to participate in that conversation. And I've got one daughter who's very, who's, who very artfully says, you know, I, I, you're right, right, I'm wrong, I'm, I'm wrong, and doesn't want to go through the understanding of how, of how wrong she really is. But you know what? She gets that from her daddy. And I got that from my daddy, and it goes all the way back up to Adam. It's part of who we are. But if we're going to fully understand the glory of the grace, we have to understand the depth of our sin. As, as our dear friend Rich Wagner likes to say when he's, whenever he's leading a prayer, the beauty of God's grace is that he loves us so much despite the fact that, he, that God knows us so very well. We simply don't deserve this grace, but that's what makes it so powerful. And folks, grace that, that is this powerful is transforming. If you really wrap your mind, as best you can, around the fullness of Christ's grace, it transforms your life. Look at Peter. He goes from, from not even having the courage to affirm Christ in front of a servant girl, to after Pentecost, he's preaching before the crowds. And then the Jewish authorities seize him and they beat him and they say, look, you, you don't preach in the name of Jesus ever again. And he's like, Pfft. he completely ignores the authorities. He's going to continue to preach. And in Acts 5.41, we read that he and John rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. That, by the way, is one of the things that, that I look at as confirmation that Christ rose from the dead. Confirmation that the gospel story is true because it transforms Peter from someone who is cowardly to someone who boldly proclaims the gospel. How do you have that kind of radical transformation but for the powerful grace of Christ? Jesus explained it best in, in Luke seven twenty seven. He said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Peter realized that he had been forgiven much. He had denied Christ essentially to his face. He had boasted about his faith in front of his brothers. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Peter was forgiven much, and when he wrapped his mind around that, he loved much. And brothers and sisters, we sit here today having been forgiven much. In our own way, shape, and form, we have denied Christ to his face. In our own way, shape, and form, we have listened to the lies of the world, to our own flesh, and to the enemy, that, that Christ isn't sufficient. But despite the fact that we regularly turn our backs on Jesus, he continues to love us. And oh, by the way, when he hung on that cross, he knew you would do it. And he died for you anyway. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And we sit here today, if, if you have claimed the name of Christ, if he in fact died for your sins, we sit here today as more than conquerors because the lies of Satan are from the pit of hell. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. We are in these things more than conquerors. And so my mind is drawn to that, that, that wonderful modern hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. 
Because my sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Pray with me. Father God, the message of the gospel is so hard for us to understand and We'll never fully grasp until we stand with you in glory. But along the way, Father, we cry out, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Forgive us, Father, when the seductive call of this world seems more real. Forgive us also, Father, when we allow the whispers of Satan to take root in our minds. But, Father... I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus that you'll drive those things out of our minds. That you'll give us the grace to see the darkness of our sin. But you'll you'll give us the grace to see the bright light of your love driving out from every corner of our heart. You'll give us the grace to love you more, Father, and that that love will be transforming. That we may be confident of your love, and that we may be sharp, useful tools in the hand of our master. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.